Good evening, everyone. I'm Ian James Wright from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Alphabetical Fugazi, the only podcast that devotes an episode each to discussing every song in the band's catalog from Fuga A to Fuga Z. Joining me today to discuss number five from the 2001 Furniture EP is Scott Underwood, a friend and erstwhile musical collaborator. How are you doing today, Scott? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool to reconnect. We haven't chatted too much recently, um, so I'm eager not only to hear your thoughts about uh, Fugazi, but just to shoot the shit, as they say. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna nail, I'm gonna nail bullseye. <laughs> yeah, to give a little background for for real eagle-eared listeners out there, your brother Jay was uh, Jay Underwood was on the show a while back uh, talking about Cash Out with me, and yeah, it's kind of a funny story. I knew Jay in college. And I was in a band with him. And then uh, years later, I moved to New York uh, at some points around, I want to say, 2011, 2012. And uh, Scott was living there. And I was like, oh, turns out Scott's a really cool guy, too. And uh, I'm going to be his friend and be in a band with him also. So that's what we did. And uh, we were in a we were played in a couple of bands together up there. Yeah. And if I remember right, my brother did that thing where he will email people and be like, you guys should be friends. Like, oh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he did that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Cool. And I'll I'll reach out to you and say, hey, I got this email that says I should be your friend. Uh, how's that going to work out? <laughs> yeah, it was funny it did, because it I turned think out the, it worked out great. <laughs> I think the previous time that I had even met you, I mean, you must have just like been in high school at the time or something. Uh, well, and we were in college. So it was like, you know, who wants who wants to hang out with the little high school brother? But uh, we met again as equals, basically, and uh, yeah, many good times were had. I remember that because, yeah, I used to like lurk around when my brother was having band practice and, and only for the sole purpose of, of like showing my GoldenEye prowess. So I would just <laughs> be like, hey, anyone want to play GoldenEye while you're, while you're like taking a break? And then I just like completely destroy them and, <laughs> and be like, cool, nice to meet you. Uh, <laughs> 25 kills to one. Damn, so that's pretty. If you've been uh, you've been keeping up your skills, or do you think you're kind of rusty at Goldeneye now? Do you think you could dominate if we sat down right now and played Goldeneye? I think I could, as long as you weren't. Uh, as long as we had a setup that that like made sure you weren't screen watching, um, which I think was the only way I would play by the end. Interesting. I, I was a purist. Really, screen watching is screen watching was a part of the game, and I mean, obviously now with the networking and computers, like no one has to worry about that. But growing up, you remember how like people would just watch your screen and say like oh i know that he's about to come around this corner because i'm watching his screen and <laughs> yeah i always just thought of that as part of the game right i don't know about you my my preferred setup was always uh pistols only but uh license to kill so just one shot yeah. uh killed you that, like that was always but the you most have fun to, to me you have to turn off auto aim have to oh yeah yeah come yeah. on <laughs> you can't bring that in here <laughs> um you were just telling me you went to Belmont yesterday, right? That's something we had uh, done together when I lived in New York. And uh, yeah, I, I was out of the tracks yesterday doing some gambling, and uh, I would I would say like, COVID gambling is the best because there's no one there, and and Belmont normally is like a hellish place to be. Oh my it's god! Just do you remember the, swarming with the time we went together? Drunk people. Yeah, not only when when we went together, not only was it incredibly crowded. Like I don't think I even really saw the race because. You're just behind a crowd of people. But then Well, if I recall, that was the year we hung out with Wally Zerbiak's brother. Is that accurate? <laughs> that sounds right. 
Yeah, we met we met Wally Zerbiak's brother, and he was like, "Come party with us!" And I got a I got a VIP section. And we we're like, "Okay, how do you make money? Like, how are you famous?" Wally Zerbiak's like, you know, a role player on a on a you know basketball team. But you, what do you? What's your deal? And it, yeah, we had a good time. But I do recall it being very very hot, very sweaty, and we didn't see many horse races. <laughs> so and trying to get home on the uh, on the. Uh, L-I-R-R was it's insane. Like, it was... <laughs> I don't. I would say the, the L-I-R-R after the Belmont is one of the most depraved places on the planet. I, yeah, I feel like I ended up just taking a cab home or something because it was just not moving at all. It was, yeah, madness. So I, I never went back after my first time at the Belmont. Yeah, I, I, I would say COVID Belmont is the, is the way to go because there's no lines, no people. Actually got to see some horses, won a little bit of money, and uh, we also met one, someone met this guy in the bathroom who actually owned one of the horses, and he was like, "Come back to my VIP area." And so, much <laughs> like much like Wally Zerbiak's brother, we had an interesting story out of that. So, always a good time, whether or not you actually have fun while you're doing it or after uh, Bel- Belmont Stakes. Well, yeah, I guess if uh, if we have another COVID that rolls around and uh, I get vaccinated for that and the timing is right, maybe I'll hit up a, a horse race. We'll we'll meet in Kentucky or something. <laughs> Catch that. <laughs> highly recommend. Highly recommend it. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, as I said, we were in a couple of bands. Um, you know, you you played drums, sort of in my own project where I was writing songs and playing guitar, and then we uh. Uh, we were another band where I was playing bass and you were playing drums. One of the great band names of all time. That one was called Thor Throat, which I still love. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Um, and uh, yeah, and I, I really wanted to be on this particular particular episode because I'm actually not that huge of a Fugazi fan. But this song like changed. I mean, not changed my life, but I would say this song definitely. Is something that's going to stick with me, and like I remember where I was sitting when I first heard it, the kind of thing. So I'm yeah. really glad to be on this this particular episode. No, yeah, I was really interested in that because I told you I was starting this podcast, and I, I don't, I hadn't really remembered ever talking about Fugazi much with you, and you were like, "Oh, dude, I I'm going to be your guest for number five. and I was like, <laughs> "That's it." I did not expect that. That's that's a deep cut, first of all. Like, not many people even know it. It's way down the alphabet. So I was like, "All right, man, you got it. I'll I'll hit you up in an, a year and a half or whatever." <laughs> and finally, here we are. Um, here we are, man. I'm excited. To, so I got to tell you. So the the reason, like, the background of why I, I feel so strongly about being on this particular episode is in 2001. Uh, and video, there's a there's a trans world video called Video Radio. It's escape trans world's a skateboarding magazine, and right. uh, I was an avid skateboarder growing up. And uh, this video came out, and the intro to this video is is like it's it follows the the Circa shoe team. So Circa was a was a skateboarding shoe company. They had a pretty good lineup of of characters that that were really good at skateboarding, and and you know pretty popular amongst the people my age. And it follows them across Europe on this tour, but the, the way they introduce the the video is with the song number five. And so I remember sitting in my family room, turning on this video for the first time, and and seeing this, like, and, you know, the song starts. It's like it comes out so strong, right? It's like these like 
huge, big old, you know, like, and that, that coupled with like the scenes that they put together were just like them on tour buses surrounded by people. And so these skaters were like roll up to these towns in, in Europe and the bus would get surrounded by people and the, the skaters would like get off the bus. The people would, would like the sea would kind of part almost like Moses, like the skateboarder coming down. And then he would just do like this insane trick and like right off the bus, no warm up, like and like nail it. And it's just like as that song is playing and it's like the most epic it just it makes you think that that skateboarders are the coolest people on the planet, and you're you know growing up there's there's like just nothing like that feeling of like wow I'm part of something that's like really really cool, and uh, I would go out in my driveway and just like put number five on and like try to imagine a sea of people around me like cheering me on as I did tricks. So I was I was never a skateboarder myself, although yeah I I was. <laughs> I was in that group of people who thought skateboarders were pretty damn cool. Um, and, uh, of course, skateboarding is sort of, like, deep in the DNA of Fugazi because, like, Ian Mackay was a skater from way back, just, like, skating around with Henry Rollins and stuff. Um, yeah, so I I never made that part of my life, but I always had this sort of, like, deep-seated respect for it. Um, you don't, yeah, I never even, I never realized he was such an avid skate, like he, he grew up skateboarding, right? Yeah. He was pretty into it. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a cool thing. I think that, I think skateboarding teaches you a lot of lessons that, you know, you you carry with you throughout your life and basically because you just like eat shit so much. You're like, (laughs) you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. And like when bad things happen in your life, you're like, oh, this is just like the human equivalent of, of like what I do on my skateboard all the time. Something bad happened. I, I get back up and I try it again. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, that's a <laughs> one big takeaway from watching skateboarders is like, yeah, just, <laughs> you almost never see them successfully do a trick <laughs> or maybe I was just like watching the wrong groups, but like, no, no, yeah. I think you just, most of the time skateboarding, you're messing up like the most, of the, the majority of your time you're spending just not doing. Tricks. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you're just like, messing up tricks and it's like oh turns out this is actually really fun because of how hard it is it's like landing the trick it doesn't even it's not even that cool once you do it because it's like oh that person just spent four hours bailing and then they finally landed it but i think uh the 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 fun part is is the journey you know it's like just getting there so yeah and a like the quote i always remember from ian mckay talking about skateboarding is he said something like uh, one of the great things about skating to him is that it sort of causes you to like reassess your relationship with the physical world around you. You like you just look at things in a different way, in terms of like, okay, it, you know, on a skateboard, how do I deal with this kind of terrain? What is possible here? Um, and yeah, yeah I mean, no, definitely. I mean, to this day, I see when I walk down the streets, I don't like see ledges. You're like, oh, I could nose slide that, right? You're like, oh, I could jump down these stairs, or like, I could grind on this rail like you never see the world the same way ever again so it's definitely a um a life-changing sport in the way that you you just perceive things as like (laughs) what could i do with this skateboard on this so do you pretty pretty cool do you think that uh, that video is online anywhere right now oh yeah i think if you just google uh transworld video radio it'll, it'll come up all right, we'll we'll try to find that and put it in the show notes for uh, listeners, so you can click on the link. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd very much like to see this now. Yeah, um, no, it's it's great. It's like Jamie Thomas. The first the first shot is Jamie Thomas in a bus telling the filmer, like, "Dude, you got to film this." And it's like just a 
insane amount of people. And it just right when the when those big, big, heavy like notes at the beginning of that song drop in, you know, it's very well edited. Uh, people at Transworld do a very, very good job. Um, it just makes you want to skateboard. So, yeah, I, I think we'll get to that later. It has it definitely has that feel like it's a it's a real action song. It makes you want to do stuff by way of introducing it a little bit with uh, some objective things that I can say about it. It's a song that was released on the Furniture EP. There is a a part that originated on the song Turkish Disco from the instrument soundtrack. Uh, when Brendan Canty was on the podcast a little while ago, we, we talked about that. He was talking about how, yeah, Turkish Disco was kind of a song that ended up being too boring to, to live, basically. Um, so they cut out a part of it and um, basically put it into this song number five, which is is the part that's like um, so that's that's the I'll refer to that as the Turkish disco part as we talk about mm-hmm, it, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Some more fun facts. We have Jerry Busher on second drums on this, so it's not only Brandon, it's Jerry just making the drums sound like extra thick and stuff like that. Who I believe also played drums for the Spinanese from Portland. I believe that's uh, right, yeah. Which was another band that was prevalent in skate videos, constantly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Another friend of the show, Nick Pelichodo, Fugazi's like touring sound guy, he helped mix this one, uh, or so it says in the in the liner notes, like mix assistance by him. So uh, yeah, tip of the hat to Nick there. Um, and of course, you know, it's <laughs> being named number five, and being an instrumental, it sort of joins. In my mind, it joins the songs Joe number one and Brendan number one as these instrumentals that are like have number titles. Um, do you even, think? Do you think there's anything behind the name number? What do you think about the name? Like, does yeah, it mean anything? I, I basically think it's the kind of thing where they, they. We've talked on this podcast before a lot about the Fugazi writing process, where most of the time they, um, they worked on songs as instrumentals, and for a while it would just be like an instrumental thing, and they wanted to get it really interesting in that regard, and then like one of the sort of last steps was somebody to write lyrics for it and sing on it. Um, so yeah, my impression is they would have working titles for a lot of these songs. And then when the lyrics got added, um, either maybe they kept the working title in some respect, or maybe it was slightly changed or they gave it a new title based on the lyrics. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that's why, um, yeah, the ones that remained instrumentals sometimes would tend to have more like working title type. Yeah titles makes sense i mean every band i've been in does that where it's like yeah you just you have some dumb name and sometimes you're like well let's just go with it or whatever you know yeah one other little interesting fact i i saw on a uh, I, i'm pretty sure i've cited this before but there's a pitchfork interview with Gee where he's he briefly mentions this he's talking about how you know famously fugazi didn't use set lists and they had this sort of way of communicating with each other. So he's talking about that, um, about, you know, what song they're going to play next. And mm-hmm. um, he's, he says, some songs, like number five, has a hand signal, and the song O has a hand signal. You know, it's just a weird language that we've developed, he says. So, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, they're just like... I wonder I wonder what the hand signal for number five is. I really hope it's similar to, like, Booker T before <laughs> he's about to do it, like his karate kick in the, in the WWF. Like... Yeah, yeah where he just waves it. The five time, I believe it was called, where he just waves his hand. Because number five, you could just do five time, you know, right in front of your face there. 
Believe it or not, I'm I'm not familiar with that reference. You might have to send me a video of that too, and we'll put that yeah. in the show notes. <laughs> Google B- Booker T five time. Anyone who's listening, uh, you won't be disappointed. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I I was actually looking at a few live videos of them playing number five to see if I could see what was happening, and I I didn't catch it. in, in the videos that I saw, um, yeah, uh-huh. you have to imagine it's just like <laughs> I hold up a. A hand with you know yeah, five, five fingers, fingers up right? like that's that's yeah, what I would imagine. But um, gotta be number five actually got a lot of play for being s- like sort of a late period um, song. Um, they 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 busted this out a a good deal actually. Well, that guitar tone with their you know right is is I would say very indicative of that period of time as far as like a lot of bands emulated that in my opinion like. I think the band Franz Ferdinand definitely took that and was like, that's a cool tone. I want to sound like that. That's right? interesting. I could definitely hear that. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I mean, it, it's got that, like that, it's just, they nailed that tone so well. And I think a lot of bands in that time were like, Ooh, that's hot. Let's try Let's check that out. And I don't know how they achieved it. I don't know what kind of guitar he was playing on the song, but. Uh, well, so that, yeah. I mean, let me break it down a little. Um, this sort of structure of the song, I guess we can sort of go through it. The first thing you really hear on this track is there's some kind of clicking and hiss. Um, yeah, yeah, and it sounds almost like a like a like a record player. Or yeah, I don't know what it, what is it. Like, I I don't know. I I imagine that to somebody who's really like into recording music, that might be a familiar sound. Like like maybe the mechanical um uh part of a tape machine possibly because it's like clicking at regular intervals. Um, but yeah, I, I can't. I'm not really sure myself. I just I it, imagine it's it sounds like, like the the opening of like a Philip K. Dick novel almost. Like, yeah, <laughs> right. This, this is like him describing some like mechanical uh, thing. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. Just gives me the sense that it's some kind of me- mechanical recording equipment. Um, but then yeah, the, the, we get to the big chord part that you pointed out before. Bum bum, and then these awesome yeah. drum fills that are happening. So as, as a drummer is. Do you have a favorite part of this song? I, I think that those wise? fills at the honestly those fills at the beginning are so awesome. They are uh, just. To, 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 I mean, it's just like so Tom heavy, and it's so hard to get good Tom sounds, and they just they sound great. So I think I would say honestly, not that it sounds like a cop out, but this is my it's my favorite part. It's the beginning. Uh, yeah, I I I feel like I couldn't argue with that, especially if I were a drummer. It's just very epic sounding. And that, because and then and once you once you get that guitar coming in after the beginning part, you, you kind of have a primal drum beat that I do love. But it's not as it's it doesn't grab. But at that point, you've already been grabbed. The beginning grabs you and starts shaking you. And you're like, wow, this is something <laughs> special. And then you kind of at that point, by the middle of the song, it's what you're used to. You're like, oh well, of course it's going to be a primal beat. I'm like this is awesome. I've already been grabbed. Uh, so yeah, that that don't. That, yeah, it's sort amazing, of amazing drums. Yeah, it's a it's a track that does a good job of grabbing you and then um, doing subtle evolutions of its own sound that it's established to make it like a little more interesting in parts here and there. It like there are a couple of pretty big left turns, but I th- yeah, I think mainly it's it's a good lesson in writing a a song like this that sort of takes a main idea and elaborates on it a little bit in interesting ways. Um. Yeah, it's yeah, and the the second drums. So I, I listened to it a, a bunch of times, and I try to distinguish where the second drums are. And I think they're layered over the whole thing. 
Yeah, this is but. an impression that I get from watching it live too. Uh, again, like I have sort of an untrained eye. Um, maybe a drummer would um, have a more educated outlook on this, but to me, it looks like what they're playing is a lot of mainly the same thing. So it just mm-hmm. adds a, a thickness to the sound, and those those like you know like rim clicks that are slightly out of time with each other just um, just make it sound bigger and. And more, I don't know, more clickety clackety and interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. I think it's it's a cool idea too, and not a lot of not a lot of bands do layered drums like that. Yeah. A lot of people do that just with vocals, but it's like it's, it applies to the drums and it makes it sound just like thicker and heavier, like you said. Have you ever right. played in any kind of group with a second drummer? I was so I was a second drummer in a group before. Really? Um, Tell me about yeah, it. Yeah, and it was called the Insect Club, and it was a. Um, a very loose collective of musicians uh, that lived in Williamsburg, Virginia, and this was William and Mary kind of, uh, as you as you know, because you've been there. Um, <laughs> I have. It was a William and Mary band, and uh, we would just. It was mostly improv- improvised um, instrumentals, so it would be just a bass or guitar riff that someone would start playing and. and keep it really open and loose and then I, I believe if you go to the insectclub.net that jeremiah who's kind of the mastermind behind all of it uh still maintains it and there's a lot of recordings on there from from that period of time um did you guys and, and the insect go ahead did you guys actually like play shows out yeah we, we played a few shows i played i played you um the uc oh nice <laughs> we played we played at uh the meridian coffee house a few times I, dude i was gonna say i don't see how you can fit two drum sets in the meridian uh, they didn't. They didn't appreciate it. I believe the <laughs> like. They were also upset with us because we were really, really loud. And so, the the main drummer, my friend Tony, he was an amazing drummer and just was. We we complimented each other very well because we had different styles and he's a heavier, heavier hitter than I am. But um, as the second drummer, so my setup was just floor toms. So that's all I had. So I had like a couple different sizes but i had i think i had three floor toms and then 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 two cymbals and so it was like three floor toms two cymbals and so i can imagine what busher was doing was was very similar which is like kind of like you said playing the same thing but but over top of and just like adding extra oomph to the uh to the back end of the song yeah and also it seems like in one of the videos i was watching um it it, it was like Brendan was playing snare and the ride cymbal, and Jerry was playing like pretty much the same part, except he was playing snare and the hi hats. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah. yeah, that would that would that would sound great. I think because you get the kind of nice dynamic between it between a kind of real real tight ride or sorry hi hat, and then you get the nice loose ride. It sounds like it would be pretty cool. Yeah, and of of course at a certain point in the song, um, at least in the live version, gave. Uh, Brendan a little bit of a chance to wail on that uh, bell of his while Jerry kind of yeah. held it down. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and but then, so this was re- and this was recorded in Northern Virginia, right? Yeah, inner ear, like basically where they recorded almost all of their recordings at uh, inner ear in Arlington. Have you been there? Because aren't you from? You're from the area, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I recorded, dude. I I guess I never told you the story, but I recorded there. Um, they, it, it's basically like split into two spaces, like in the same building, there was inner ear Mm -hmm. and there's silver Sonia. 
um, which is, uh, I think, TJ Lipple's parallel thing. So I was recording at Silver Sonia, but at that time, in, in, in her ear, Ian McKay and Joe were there doing Joe's uh, one of Joe's solo albums. So like, huh. <laughs> I was hanging out with those guys in between Whoa. recording. That's awesome. It was incredible. At, some, at one point, um, Joe asked to borrow one of my basses. To, to use on a track <laughs> wow. i was like this is the best thing that's ever happened to me that's amazing man that's great yeah that's great yeah um Bummer. well Bummer. just basically starting to talk about the structure of the song but yeah yeah let's dive in yeah so after that those big chords bum, bum, with all the drum fills um the main riff comes in and that's uh that's Guy Pachotto playing that main surfy sounding riff um, on his Rickenbacker, and that might speak to why you think um, you like you observed that kind of sound having having a bit of a resurgence or or just a surgence yeah. in music because I feel like around that time that was the real indie rock boom two thousand one and the years thereafter you know the Strokes were coming out and all those yeah. guys were using like Telecasters Rickenbackers jazz masters like these single coiled brighter sounding guitars the big heavy like les pauls and gibson sgs those were sort of passe guitarists were sort of looking on those as like heavy rock dinosaurs that weren't cool anymore yeah so that might be what you're observing yeah that's yeah it's totally it i mean i I don't as someone who doesn't know much about guitars uh sounds very very much like what what what's going on there yeah for sure so Guy's playing that riff like there's some background guitar sort of like feedback screeching happening um but he's playing that riff solo and then like that main riff happens and and the drums and bass come in and play along for another like four loops they play that main riff then we have the turkish disco part that i mentioned earlier two times Mm -hmm. and then back to the main riff solo back to the main riff with drums and bass turkish disco two more times then there's this like this part that's i've just been thinking of uh as herky jerky <laughs> like that's the name i've given it in my head They're like dan 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 if there's any part that seems out of place in this song i it might be that one it's it's probably like a part that if it were like the main part of a song i would be like this song kind of sucks but as yeah, yeah. as a little um as a little palate cleanser in the middle of this rad song it's it's pretty cool yeah, no, I mean that, that it's this song is so dynamic in the sense that like there's several different inter- interesting pieces and they fit they fit them together very well. I can imagine playing this live would be very difficult. Yeah, totally. It I it does look like um live gee like he's not having the easiest time of it. I think it's it's a pretty fast riff and he's like he sort of like tends to slur some of the notes or like um just maybe just not play it as articulately as he does on the record which is yeah understandable i also noticed him sort of picking up his guitar a little at times normally on his strap the way he likes it is like hanging a little too low for him to be playing certain parts so he'd sort of like actually pick it up and play more intricate things and then like let it down to play the bigger chords happening so interesting yeah but yeah after that herky jerky part as i call it we have like a variation on the main riff uh, with like these false starts, it's like that happens yep, a few yep, times, yep. and then we, we get another variation because they're playing that main riff, but Guy's playing it an octave higher. 
that's a really nice little i mean it's it's certainly not something that's like a complicated or mind-blowing change but it really works so well to just give a little different flavor all of a sudden he's playing it an octave higher and it seems to like take the song to a different place and then it's even a little different because um after a few iterations of that he and i don't know if you heard this listening to the song but he clearly kicks on this wah pedal so he's playing it an octave higher and then all of a sudden it goes wah as he's like yep. as he's playing that yep. high part um so yeah, he's not like going like wah 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 wah. It's just that one sort of tonal fade in with the pedal. Um, yeah, interesting. It's funny. It's funny because as talking to you about it, I can tell like we we listen to it from different perspectives. I I certainly listen to it from like a what's the drum? What, what's going on with the yeah, drums? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just funny. I I think of that all the time. Like every time I'm trying to break down one of these songs, I'm like, okay, I should listen to this through one time and just listen to what the drums are doing. Because yeah, as much as I love Brendan's playing, it's it's not exactly where my head is at a lot of the time. Right, right. I remember cause it's funny that you also just I just remembered that I used to listen to this song in, on my mini disc player. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I never that, had that one of those. Period of time. Oh, it was the best because. Going not not to bring it back to skateboarding too much, but CD players would skip, right? So you'd have this problem where you'd be pushing down the street or you'd mess up a trick and your CD player would skip out. You'd be like, well, that's... Oh, you're skating with a CD player in the big oh, pocket I mean, of your Jinkos, right? Once, yeah, once you skate with music, you can't, you can't go back. And people are... So, these, these people growing up now are so spoiled because they have AirPods, you know, and it's yeah. like... Oh God! I wish I had AirPods because I had this big wire hanging off of me, and I would sometimes it would get hung up with my arms flailing yeah. around. <laughs> but, but but when the but when the the mini disc player came out, the Sony MD mini disc player, uh, it changed the game because it was like these don't skip. It's basically just a big old piece of memory sitting in this thing that that doesn't skip. And it's like cool. I have a hard drive in my pocket, and I can listen to music. And that's how I used to listen to Number Five was was on my mini disc player. I remember wanting one of those for sure, but um, never never grabbed one. How many mini discs did you have? Well, so you could yeah. I mean, I think I had three, and you could you basically just rewrite them with whatever songs you wanted on them. And I think I don't recall, but I think they they held around thirty to fifty songs. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, and so it was. It was just like a CD burner situation. So you didn't like buy computer. albums on mini disc. You were just no, 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 no. It was. It. it was. It, this was just a, a medium that happened to work for music, and so you would just, you know, throw together a mix. And and I remember specifically because I after that video radio uh, came out, I was like, I got to put this on my mini disc. This has got to be part of my skate mix, hundred percent. Like now, you know what else doesn't skip? The fucking Walkman. <laughs> that, that was never a consideration for you. Like I'm gonna go back in time to. Uh, to I should have. You know, I honestly should have done that. But I, I, for whatever reason, I, I mean, I grew up listening to tapes. My first tape was was Get a Grip by Aerosmith, and definitely was on the tapes. But for some reason, by the time I was skateboarding, which was probably 1999 or so, I was like not like I didn't even think about it. So. Shame on me, really, because I think that would have been the, the way to go. It, it, I think there's something kind of like, kind of cool about that, like a, in a little bit of a throwback way. It's like, dude, that yeah, guy's listening to a walk now, man. 
I never, I never get all these bands, dude. I mean, everyone in Brooklyn's like, like, oh, we got to do you have a tape? Did you put out a tape? And you're like, why would I do that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's kind of weird. Everyone loves tapes. So. Yeah. Who has a tape player? I don't know. It's the, it's the like trendiest, hippest thing to put out a tape. You're like, oh, your band have an album isn't on tape, and you're like, uh, no. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how, I don't even know how I would go about doing that. Like, <laughs> it's hard to imagine there are a lot of tape pressing operations up and running. You know, like, how many factories are dedicated to that? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I imagine going to some place where it's like, the, you know, I don't know if you remember Men in Black, where Men in Black 2, where Tommy Lee Jones opens up the, like, uh, mail sorting, and it's like <laughs> this alien with eight arms listening to, like, uh, <laughs> Motorhead or something, and, like, smoking cigarettes and being, like, sorting the mail. Like, that's, what I, that's what I imagine a tape situation, like a tape-making <laughs> place would, would have a, something like that. Um, well, yeah, just to finish off what I was saying, because almost at the end after that wah sweep and that crazy main riff variation, there's the Turkish disco part again, but they, they change that up too. They give a little spin on that because it starts out as just Ian playing. And then Mm -hmm. after he plays one, like one loop of it, Ian and Guy are both playing it. And then the next one, Ian, Guy and Joe are all playing. So they they like really build it up in a nice way, which is something that tends to happen in a lot of Fugazi songs. Um, and it really makes you realize, oh, okay, like these are all the I, I have been listening to the song with all these different ingredients, but here they're like actually showing me here's everything that goes into the stew. That's always a really cool effect. And then there's the, there are those big chords again, bum bum, to like end out the song, and they and they just end on that one big chord, bum. And finally, there's like a little noise at the end there's a squeaky wheel kind of sound happening Mm -hmm. also sounds like some kind of mechanical device and then you've got this little um uh sort of spaceship sound that i recognize as the like a a delay effect a delay pedal self-oscillating which you can you can usually do with any analog delay sometimes maybe digital ones too we gotta we gotta figure out what these machines are (laughs) i should uh yeah i wonder if i can Get back in touch with Nick and see if he knows. <laughs> so, yeah, I wonder like, if, what what is what is that thing? <laughs> yeah, like it's like maybe that's an important part of of him helping to mix the song. Is like how high in the mix should we put this uh, this weird little squeaky wheel sound? Like yeah, bump it up a couple of dBs. How? But I mean, how happy would that make you if if something you recorded, you know, at this point twenty years ago, someone emails you and is like, hey, <laughs> the thing at the beginning of that recording. It's it's really killing me. What what is that thing? <laughs> you know, at the end, at the very end, what is that thing? But yeah, like that's the structure of the song. Looking back on things, like when we were in the band called the Bloody French, we had we had an instrumental that we would play called Infra Dig. I don't know if you remember that one. I do, I do. I, and I I always liked it. And uh, although this song shows me like how much better it could have been, like I should have I should have worked out. Maybe as a as a band on the whole, we should have worked out different little variations, little things we could do about like, okay, just the bass should play here, just the guitar should play here, we should build it up in these certain ways. There are cues that at that point I did not take from Fugazi that maybe I should have and that may, would have made like an instrumental track like that better. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we, we did a, we, we didn't do as good of a job. They do a really good job of kind of knowing when to pile on and when to not. And it's like we especially for an instrumental, the dynamics matter so much more. And it's like, they really 
the subtleties of, of those dynamics is hard to hard to capture and, and you know replicate so yeah I agree with that it's funny I was I was in Williamsburg um, two days ago uh, and I don't go up there that often Williamsburg Brooklyn and I remember we used to play at that place what was the place off of the Bedford stop that was like what was that place where it was right off the Bedford stop it was like a pub uh, it was about three doors down from the Bedford stop. Yeah, I, I know the place we, you're talking about. and We played it right before it kind of went away. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's funny now, if you go up there now, it's like, it, you get out and you're, it's like, um, you're in a Whole Foods. You're like, what? Really? Wow. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, it's, 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 it, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to describe. <laughs> I'm having hard trouble finding the words, but it's, it's been, uh, it's, you know, you get off the train and you're like, you feel like Andre and you're like, my bad, my bad. You corporate America, you corporate America, you know, like <laughs> that's, I feel the same way about DC. Like I left the DC area around 2008 and haven't lived there long term since then. But yeah, like whenever I've had a chance to go back, like I remember, you know, going to shows, the black cat and nine thirty, and it would that be cut, like, it would be like a little bit scary back in high school. But then yeah. now it's like there's like ritzy furniture stores across the street and stuff like that. It's it <laughs> yeah. was very different last time I was there. Yeah, even the east, I mean, even the east village is is like got targets everywhere now, and it's like whoa. What what part of town do you live in now? I'm in I'm in Borum Hill now, which is Borum Hill, right? S- kind of like right next to Barclays Center. Yeah, right between Cobble Hill and and then like Park Slope area. You still More get season a, tickets to the Nets. Yeah, man, I'll be there to be there tomorrow for the oh, playoffs. Nice. nice. Yeah, so they're making a run. Um, it's gonna be, it's gonna be fun. They, I mean, obviously they have a pretty stacked team now, so they're they're good, which is weird because I'm not used to rooting for a team that's supposed to win. Like, I don't really know how to do it. Yeah. Like, I'll go I'll go in and be like, wait, we're like, how do I just root? How do I just be cocky? I don't know how to be cocky. I just know how to be like humble and and be like i'm just glad to be here you know (laughs) i wonder um, strange i know at least some of the guys in fugazi were big into basketball like gi in particular i know he's like he's a big basketball fan and he was a wizards fan but he lives in brooklyn now i wonder if he's a nets fan yeah that's what i was wondering at least last i checked he was living in brooklyn um yeah i I wonder if he's uh he attends a lot of those games or or follows it yeah (laughs) Keep an eye out when you're at the games. Maybe yeah, you'll... yeah. I mean, it's it's been. I I really want them to become even more villains because they're more villainous. Uh, everyone's like, oh, they just you know traded away and got all this talent, and I'm like, yeah, bring it. And so I wear NWO shirts to the to the games. Um, it's like a, we want to be a heel. You know, this is this is the Nets doing a heel turn. You know, this is, this is them really embracing this dark villainous role in the NBA. <laughs> I, I love it i love it so were you a yankees fan too no no i'm a mets fan um that's i think I that's like a role that yankees fans sort of have delighted in over the years too yes just like the evil just like darth vader is actually really cool when you think about <laughs> it uh, like, yeah i mean like all the nazi stuff aside like the empire is pretty like pretty cool um <laughs> Yeah, you know, like the Nazis, they're awful, but, I mean, they know how to dress, dude. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, I, I can't hold up my end of a conversation about sports too much. Um, but I would like to know, I, I don't think we fleshed out much about it, but you know, you said you weren't that much of a Fugazi fan on the whole. Can you elaborate on that? Just just so I like have some context for you. When did you become aware of them? Do you remember that? I mean, I, so I do. And I remember it was through my brother. Most things is growing up as a younger brother, you're exposed through your older brother. And it, it must have been when I was in seventh grade. And I remember because he got, I believe it was waiting room. Um, he got that at some point and like showed it to me and was like, this band's wild. And then, and then he was also talking about like, I don't know if this is even accurate. Because I don't, I don't know enough about Fugazi, but he was like, yeah, they, they do these straight-edge shows. Like, there's no booze at their shows. And I was like, huh. And I, as a kid, you're like, I don't even know what that even, what the implications of that are. <laughs> but, uh, but like, that, I just remember that, like, hearing that, uh, that album and then, and then, like, coupling that with the idea that they do these shows where there's no alcohol was, like, my whole, my whole, like, understanding of them. And that was about it. And then, like, I think I heard Repeater later um, at some point. Um, and I was like, this is great. But I, for some reason, like, I never, I think I was just too young to, for, like, to really dive in yeah. at that point. I kind I was, like, always on the fringe. And I think they're an amazing band. I definitely was, like, super excited when you were doing this. I was like, I definitely want to do this podcast. But um, I never, for whatever reason, got past the fringe. And so, to me, it was always like, oh, yeah awesome band no booze and that was like the two things i remember about it and i don't even, is that so is that accurate did they well, do shows that weren't yeah i mean the, they didn't only do shows that that didn't serve booze what they did was they only played shows that were all ages right mm, so mm. A, a lot of times that would mean playing in a place that didn't have a liquor license or at least couldn't for what maybe serve liquor on that night because they wanted to make it all ages um this wasn't like I've seen places where, you know, they're on tour in Europe and they can't play an all ages show or whatever, but I'm pretty sure they almost always would would play all ages at least domestically. Got it. And that's and so that's way different. And like the, <laughs> for whatever reason in my head I was like, "Oh, this band's like anti-alcohol." Well, what? yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's more it's it's something we've discussed, but it's like, yeah, they didn't drink and do drugs, but they weren't like I think a lot of people got the impression from that that they like hated people who who did, drank yeah. and did drugs or and or like they but it's not really like that it's just like yeah this, this is not for us and i another part of it is there's interviews with Ian where he's like it's so weird how the music industry and the alcohol industry are so intertwined all yeah. bands are always playing at these venues that are also serving alcohol and like shows will be sponsored by an alcohol brand and it's like you know they encourage people to like I mean, maybe not so much for bands, but there are several types of performances where there's like a two drink minimum. It's like you you have to buy yeah. alcohol to, to come to the show. I mean, if you really want to see my band, there's a four drink minimum <laughs> or else you're not going to like it. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the kind of thing. It's the same thing with T-shirts where Ian and the other guys at Fugazi were like, well, why is why does this have to be a thing? Like, let's just be a band and like we don't have to sell yeah. T-shirts. We don't have to be partners with alcohol brands like that's that's yeah, crazy it has nothing yeah. to do with what we're doing yeah. yeah no you're right it's funny it's like how did those two things get married i mean other than just like i guess it's a when you're socializing and listening to music you 
have nothing to do with your hands, so you might as well hold a drink. But yeah, yeah it's like, yeah, interesting. Um, that's funny. Well, um, if you decide to really jump into the Fugazi thing and jump into the deep end and become a super fan, man, there's there's a lot of episodes of this podcast already that you can really go deep on these songs, and we go painfully into detail on a lot of them. So, yeah, welcome into the pool if you want to jump yeah, in. Yeah, man, I, I'm going to start from A, and we'll go to Z. Now, so I don't know exactly how much of Fugazi's catalog you've listened to, um, so maybe this will be different from our typical e- episode, but every episode... We talk about ratings. Do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? And I ask my guest, just in the context of the whole Fugazi catalog, could you rate this song, number five, on a scale of one to five stars? Oh, I would say four. I would say four. You know what? I was going to come down in pretty much the same place. Like, I'm a huge fan of Fugazi instrumentals on the whole. I just I just really tend to like them and I I like how that was an important part of who they were as a band like practically every re- recording they did would include an instrumental. So yeah, I, I always really loved that and this is no exception. It's it's so much more energetic too. A lot of their instrumentals are a little bit on the chill mm-hmm. side or at least maybe if not chill sort of down tempo. This this one's up there. It has so much energy and it's so much fun and like as i said before it's instructive on how to um just write a good instrumental and keep it interesting and clearly it's one that they liked too because they they did play it live a lot so yeah i think i'll join you and and say it's a four-star song actually yeah i mean it's it 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 covers all the i mean like and they don't bring it they don't bring it down right like it comes up and you're like yeah where is this gonna go and it just stays up there you're like that's great (laughs) um so Something else we always do, um, I, I have a Facebook page just called The Alphabetical Fugazi, so any listeners who haven't joined it yet, feel free to join, but I always ask people there like if they have any comments they'd like to get in the episode, so I'll read a couple of those. Uh, Bradford Reed Goodwin says, It's fun to consider which of the three vocalists would have been the best fit if the song had featured lyrics. The answer for me is a clear gee, probably due to similarities with other gee-fronted tracks like Walkin' Syndrome and Down City. That said, it's fine yeah. as a jaunty up-tempo instrumental that ends with what sounds like an alien abduction. Yeah, I, I, I want to say Guy also. That's my first instinct, but I, I think it would be really hard for him to sing and play this at the same time. So maybe it could be like a Joe track. Joe could throw some vocals on this. That would be an interesting sound. Yeah, I I liked, I love that someone was like, what would this sound like if they did vocals on it? Yeah. Because it, I would be, where would they even fit? Um, be, it's a, that's a, that's a cool thought. I like that. And a few people said something that's like really similar to your, you know, your observation about liking it as part of a skate video. So Jared Coffin says, this is something you could surf or skate to. Reminds me of Down City. Um, and JJ Sorensen says, this is an excellent drive fast song. Listening in the car is dangerous. <laughs> in my opinion, some of yeah. Brendan's and Jerry's best drumming. And also, Tommy Henson Jr. says, it kind of reminds me of a surf song, but the surfers are in a tsunami with lava. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And uh, uh, finally, Eric Eddy says, I can't help myself from dancing to this song. What is Guy using there towards the end? Almost sounds like a wah. Couldn't be. Um, yeah, Eric, I, we've discussed before. Uh, I'm on um, Guilford Fall. There's a wah. 
and I'm pretty sure, 99% sure on arpeggiator, there's a part with a wah, so it's not unprecedented. Guy has been uh, photographed with a, a wah pedal in front of him at live shows, so yeah, it's it's certainly possible, and uh, that's what it sounds like to me, too. Oh, oh, Guy wahs. Guy wahs very oh, well. Oh, Guy wah. <laughs> So that's pretty much the show, man. The only other thing is um, to ask you if you have any plugs. Never mind, what's the Do you know you have any projects, musical projects or otherwise coming out yeah, soon? Or yeah, yeah. where can listeners reach you online if you want them to check you out? I've been working on uh, a band. It's funny. Uh, we're, we're called Dry Clean, one word. Um, you can find us on any of the uh, corporate America music streaming services <laughs> and, uh, and uh former uh, guest of the show dan dan mura has uh, is part of that band too right yeah he's the guitar player and uh singer and I'm, i've been singing more recently uh we've been doing more just everyone sings because nice. we all suck at singing so why not just <laughs> misery loves company um the funny thing about it is this band dry space cleaning came out a year after we started and we were like, oh, no, what is this? And it turns out they're an amazing band. Oh, no. <laughs> like, and so, like, <laughs> they're in Rolling Stone. Like, they're getting all this coverage, and it's like, oh, they're so good. And it's like, I can't argue with it because they're so good. But I was like, man, whenever I tell someone our band name, they're like, oh, I've, I've heard of that band, Dry Clean. And I'm like, no, we're not as good <laughs> as that band. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so we've talked about, like, what do, do we need to change the name? Like, what or can can there be two dry, clean style bands in the world? Like, maybe not. Uh, I think our name's cooler, but, like, at the same time, everyone's going to recognize this other name. So we've talked about changing our name. I, I My newest thing is I think a really cool name for a band would be just Piss. <laughs> There's got to be like, a band named that already. Like some, maybe. Some kind of crust punk band. Or just like the piss, yeah. Like, you can imagine the Spotify playlist. This is the piss. Like, it'd be so good. What about um, uh, so that, What about wet clean? <laughs> wet clean. Like that's not bad. I really. Oh, I really wanted to start a band called Fatberg because there's been a big Fatberg problem in New York. Um, oh, are you talking about like know. clogging up the plumbing pipes? Precisely, uh-huh. precisely what I'm talking about. Exactly, <laughs> that's a scourge. Good uh, but no, so there is a band called Fatberg that uh. came out about eight months after I had the idea. I saw it on Spotify, which I'm sure they were working on it potentially before I thought of it. But like, what a good name for a band! Just Fatberg, great name. Uh, so it sounds like uh, what does that sound like? Maybe like a stoner rock. Yeah, yeah, it's just something sludgy, something sludgy. Yeah. <laughs> For well, sure. Well, uh, there you have it, listeners. Check out Dry Clean, check out Fatberg. Um, <laughs> why not? Thanks for being on the show. It's good to finally do this. I was Part of me was yeah, like, man, when I finally get around to hitting up Scott, I wonder if he's still going to be interested. But uh, I'm, I'm glad we could get together and, and talk, man. And uh, I, hope, I hope this show holds up to, to the other ones. I, I, <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel absolutely. like we, we covered some good ground. I think so, man. And as always, I'm I'm thankful for anyone who joins me on an episode about an instrumental because just by its nature, there's not as much to talk about if you don't have any lyrics. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think we did a fine job, listeners. If you agree or if you disagree, tell us we did a shitty job on the Facebook page, <laughs> or you can email me at fugazi a to z at gmail dot com. That's just uh, my 
my usual uh, place of residence online, so email me about whatever. Uh, No plugs for me other than to tell you, stick around, keep subscribing, keep listening, and uh, join you for the next episode next week when we'll be discussing the song Oh. Until then, keep your eyes open.